All right. Hello and welcome to the SimKit podcast. Thank you for joining us today for our talk about answering clinical questions. Now, I know you might be thinking, Jason, could you possibly come up with a more boring topic for a podcast? Well, I'm going to argue that while the title might seem a little boring, the conversation, the topic, it's not. It is actually sexy. It's a sexy topic and let's talk about why. We all know that one clinician, physician, who just knows everything, it seems. He or she has the answers to all questions and can give them with a beautiful high point view of the supporting data as though it were a submission to the Cannes Film Festival. That poise, that knowledge, that, that confidence that they have, you have to admit it's alluring, it's captivating, I'd say it's downright sexy. Well, I'm excited to tell you that today I'm joined by a man who can bring your sexy back. No, I'm not talking about Justin Timberlake. This is Justin Morgenstern from the First 10 EM blog. And Justin, thank you so much for joining us. I don't think I can live up to that introduction at all, but uh, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. <laughs> we make no guarantees that he will bring sexy back to you, but... I think that this is an important topic to to go over because having that knowledge base and having that ability to dissect the data, to present it to your colleagues, to your learners, to your nurses, it gives you confidence, I think. It's alluring. It's captivating to have that person that can talk in that way. And so being able to give you a means as a listener, give you the ability to do this, to structuralize how you approach a clinical question, it's very important. So... Again, J Justin, thank you for joining us for this topic. Yeah, man, it's, it's an absolute pleasure. And I think it's even mo more than that. I, I honestly think this will make your clinical life more enjoyable because if you don't really have a way of answering these questions for yourself, you just have to trust somebody else and you actually sort of have to do that cookbook medicine. But once you can dig in here, you have way more flexibility to do things with your patients. Uh, and it just makes day-to-day -day work, in my mind, way more enjoyable. And it's going to make my career way longer. So I really, really think that everybody should at least give it a try. Fantastic. So you're saying it's not only sexier, but it also prevents burnout and improves career longevity. Those are a lot I mean, of I'm not sure everybody claims. thinks that reading literature <laughs> is going to act in that way, but it's, I really think so. I'm with you. I'm with you. And I appreciate, again, your uh, coming on because I've really admired your literature review process for First 10 EM for some time now. And I wanted you to come on and sort of help our listeners figure out w the ways they should be approaching a clinical question. As an example, let's say I just saw a 67-year-old uh, diabetic who came in to our department, unfortunately, in DKA because a well-intended provider prescribed her a steroid burst for a questionable sciatica. Now, I want to look up, was that really necessary? What's the data for steroids in sciatica? How should I go about that as a clinician? Yeah, so it's a really great question, and we're not going to do the clinical side of that today, but how we answer the question. And I'll, I'll say a couple things. How you go about this really depends on what you're trying to do. So my search strategy when I'm writing up a really long article for first 10 EM, it's going to be very different from just looking up something after a shift. Also say in terms of the search, I don't know that I'm great at this. I do have some tricks. I've been doing it for a while, but I don't think it's my strongest EBM skill. I'm no medical li librarian. So I actually think if I can, I will skip this search if at 
all possible. If there's somebody out there that's already done a search strategy to look, look up this data for, for me, I want to just use that that work. So if there's a recent systematic review or a recent Cochrane review, um, I'm just going to go straight to that because even though I want to read the papers myself, those, these people will have had a medical librarian. They will have spent hundreds of hours searching through the data. So I might as well just use that for myself. That's a fantastic strategy, right? If it's already been built, why build it yourself? Why do the work someone else has already done for you? Um, just if you would go through a little bit of the details on this. So do you go to the Cochrane Library or do you go to Google and search Cochrane Review, Steroids and Sciatica? Once you find the articles, you said that you might go through each paper individually. Why would you do that? Yeah, so I do a little bit of both. I do actually just go to the Cochrane website uh, itself and search on there, um, or I'll search on PubMed or Google or the TRIP database. But I'll use a little check marks on the side that says, you know, only give me systematic uh, reviews. Because in my first search, I just want to see if somebody else can give me a list of important papers. Once I do find a systematic review, I do try to read all the articles myself. And I really strongly suggest that people uh, do that. And the reason is, is that meta-analysis are really good at giving us the stats. They can combine all these papers together statistically and give us a really precise looking number. But meta-analyses can be really bad at bias. They often overlook bias in papers. So they have this habit of smashing together a bunch of really bad studies and what giving us what seems to be a really accurate number. But if you actually read the studies, you wouldn't trust that, that number. So I use these meta-analyses to do the search for me, but I still think you want to read the papers yourself and we'll get there. But actually, I, I, people find it daunting, but I think you should be able to read these papers in like five minutes and get a good good sense. We'll get there as we talk, I think. Uh, fantastic, because it does sound like it might be a large task to undertake, especially if you're, you know, you have several clinical questions from a shift. You come to a meta-analysis that has nine papers. It seems like a lot to dive through, but you're saying that if you're getting practice at it and you do it in a structurized way, which we'll talk about it really shouldn't take too long. No, I think you can read a paper really quickly. And, and you know, if you look at meta-analysis and there's 15 papers covered, you can probably just look at the three or four biggest or the most important, and you're still going to get a good sense of whether you can trust the meta-analysis, uh, the conclusion of that re review that you found. Okay, perfect. And so let's talk a little bit now. Say you do that search, you find that there isn't a systematic review. Then how do you go about it? Yeah, so unfortunately, it's going to be a little bit harder. If I can't cheat and use somebody else's search, I will do it myself. Um, and unfortunately, the reason this sucks is because mostly the scientific search engines suck. Um, you know, PubMed is the standard that everybody talks about, but you sort of have to be an expert to use PubMed. You have to be like a medical librarian. You have to know those mesh headings. Uh, so personally, I skip over PubMed and go to Google Scholar because I think most people, when you're just using normal language, uh, Google Scholar will spit out a better result for you. Uh, it'll be more usable. Um, and if the those search engines don't work, I will also search. Uh, there's something called the TRIP database, which is another uh, search engine I use. But I'll also look through all those um, FOMED websites uh, that have come out over the last decade to check something like Rebel EM or the SGEM and see if they've covered this specific topic. Because if they've already found the papers for me, I can skip this search step again. Because the search is probably the most painful part of this entire process. Interesting. Okay. And so you're I know exactly what you're talking about when you're on PubMed. You almost need like a degree in logic, right? You have and or or and parentheses and you're trying to figure out how to create that mesh network of headings. Pretty complicated. Is Google Scholar similar or uh, is it like just typing into Google or does it have that kind of PubMed uh, headings system? 
Yeah, I mean, even with Google, if you could get really good at Google and you can use all of the quotes and pluses and, and things like that. But no, I find Google Scholar is much more common sense. You can just type in what you're actually looking for. So for this thing, I would just go to Google Scholar and type in something like steroids for sciatica, maybe tack on RCT at the end if I'm trying to find specifically the best quality papers. And I think, you know, your top results there are going to be very usable. Whereas if you type that exact same thing into PubMed, you might have to go through hundreds of pages to find the five RCTs on, on the topic. Um, so yeah, Google Scholar is just use plain language, uh, which is really nice. Excellent. That's good to know. And then we kind of talked over it a little bit, but you know, I'm familiar with the TRIP database in some regard, but tell our listeners a little bit about it and how it functions. Uh, what's different between it and Google Scholar versus PubMed? Yeah, so I turned to it a lot. Yeah, it's an independent site that was created probably about 20 years ago uh, now by two doctors who I think were really interested in evidence-based medicine. Um, and basically, it's sort of like an in-between. Uh, much like PubMed, they curate specific information, so you're only going to find medical science on here. So Google Scholar, it does everything. So you, you could find non-medical um, science in there as well, which can can bog down the results. Uh, so it's curated information. Uh, but what I find really nice about it is very easy on the sideboard with a single click, it sorts information very well for you. So if you just want to see systematic reviews, you click on that. If you just want to see guidelines, you click on that. If you just want to see RCTs, you click click on that. So it's a really nice way to sort information really quickly. And I find, again, it's more likely to spit out good, usable results to me than a, a, an initial PubMed uh, search will be. Uh, it's changing a little bit. It used to be entirely fee. There is a now subscription model. I find that it still works well uh, free, but I'm not sure how that will change uh, over over time. Uh, but it's a good one to have um, in your in your armamentarium here. Interesting. That's good to know. And something that I haven't turned to a ton, so keeping it in mind. So adding up our sort of search engines or tools for de novo research. You talked a fair bit about Google Scholar. We talked about the TRIP database, uh, Cochrane Review, and then a little bit of a mention of PubMed, but it's I'm surprised to find that it's a relatively low frequency or low uh, utility tool for you. Uh, tell me why. It's, is, it, is it outdated in terms of searching a clinical question? Yeah, so I think I use PubMed a lot, but I generally use it when I know there's one specific paper that I'm looking for, or I can name the author. Like it has all the information you need, and the database is fantastic. The problem is the search sucks. Their search algorithm sucks. And people may disagree with me there. If you're a medical librarian, the search is fantastic if you really know how to use these mesh uh, databases, if you really know how to use it. I just don't think the average clinician is going to take the time to learn PubMed search. And in this day and age, we just expect, like, you know, in Google, you type in what you want and it spits back the, the results you want. Uh, PubMed is nothing nothing like that. So I think it's the last one that you want to be looking looking through. If you ever read these systematic reviews, right, they say that we searched on PubMed and we found 10,000 results and then we went through each of them by hand and in the end there was only three that were actually relevant to our study. Like that, that's a big, big investment of time and for the average clinician, you should not be doing that. Okay, good, good information to get back and definitely I've seen that you search a general topic and you're like, cricothyrotomy, oh my God, there's you know, 25,000 articles on the topic. How am I ever going to sort through that uh, in any reasonable way? So their algorithm just seems a little outdated compared to the others. All right, so let's say that we've used those search engines, whichever you so choose. Let's say people, are, I would imagine, are going to start with the Google Scholar, being familiar with Google as a search engine. The Scholar function is you know, akin to that. So say we've gone through uh, the Google Scholar uh, RCT steroids for sciatica and we found some papers. 
Justin, tell me a little bit about your approach for reading these papers, and in particular, as we mentioned a little bit earlier, doing so in a uh, time-efficient way. Yeah, so there's sort of two parts to this. Uh, there's um, a first initial screen before you actually download the PDF. So let's start start there. So you can just look on Google Scholar or the link will bring you over to PubMed. And this is the probably the only time you should ever look at the abstract. You just really quickly look through the abstract. And most of the time, I actually skip straight to the conclusion of the abstract. Um, it, it depends on what I'm doing the search uh, for. But if you look at that conclusion and it's completely boring or doesn't tell you anything about what you're actually searching for, then there's no time. In, there's no point in spending the time to download the entire uh, PDF. If the conclusion in the abstract is interesting, then I'll just jump back up again and I'll look at the ab the methods section of the abstract. And again, just a really quick read. If the methods in the abstract seem awful, if this is just like an uncontrolled retrospective chart review, or if it's like an animal study of, of rats, again, why, why am I going to spend the time finding a PDF, logging into a library, doing whatever I do? It's just a waste, a waste of time. So very, very quickly, a look at the abstract to see if the conclusion is interesting and if the methods are even worth uh, downloading as a first step so you don't waste any time. So that's a great sort of superficial dissection of it to, you know, get the cream from the rest of the uh, pile of papers that we may consider investigating. Once we go through that, we look at the conclusion, we jump back to the methods. Okay, this is enticing to us. Where do we go from there? Yeah, so... The big thing is uh, understanding how to read a scientific paper and understanding it is not a book. People who are inexperienced with this, I think, make the big mistake of reading from front to back. And when you download a PDF, right, these things are sometimes 16 pages, sometimes 25 pages, and that could take forever. And I think this is one of the things that scares people off from reading. So these papers have sections for a, a reason. And I think just understanding them, we can go through really quickly, uh, tells you what you need. Obviously, once you've downloaded the paper, we no longer need the, the title, we no longer need the abstract. Those are just for finding the paper. People start at the beginning, but the introduction, you know, if you knew absolutely nothing about a topic, it's sometimes interesting. But the introduction is an a non-systematic review on the topic. It's really just the author's opinions on, on a topic. And when you're trying to read a scientific paper, you're not reading it to get the author's opinions, you're reading it for the science. So Almost always, I just skip the introduction. It, it's it's a waste of, of time because you're reading for science, not for somebody else's like, you know medical ed, uh, education. Um, so that saves you some time right off the bat. Uh, the methods section is going to be by far the most important uh, section. And we're going to come back to this in, in a second because understanding how to read the methods section is really, really in, important. This is where we're going to spend the bulk of our, our time. It, it scares people, but I'll, I'll give you a, a technique that I think makes this pretty easy for thinking about the methods. The results, this is why you picked up the paper. Honestly, you can get really bogged down in the results section as well. I think it's really important to just simplify this. You are a clinician. When you're reading a paper, you know what results are important. The authors often present like a million things, you know, serum, rhubarb level, whatever. You want to know, you know, does this uh, treatment save my patient's life? Does it make their life better? You know the results you care about, so just skip and, and find those in the results section. Don't You don't have to read every single part of the results section. The discussion section is very much like the introduction section. Again, it's, this is not necessarily science. It's the author's opinion about their results, but you want to draw your own opinions. You don't want to listen to the author's uh, opinion. So again, I think just like the introduction section, you can completely dis uh, skip the discussion section. And then same thing with the conclusions. This is the author's opinion about what their results show. But the whole point of downloading this paper uh, is to 
make draw your own conclusions, not to just accept the author's conclusions. If you just wanted to accept the author's conclusions, you could have just read the abstract. So again, I think you just skip the conclusion section. So in this entirely long PDF, I skip the introduction, I skip the discussion, I skip the conclusions, I spend my time on the methods, and now you can see why I can probably read a paper in five to 10 minutes rather than the 30 minutes it takes the average person. I love that. So if we're going to dissect the, the chunks, we're going to, unless it's something new, right? Maybe you're getting high sensitivity troponin for the first time, no real uh, information on it. You're going to go through that introduction. Reboa, sure, this is an unfamiliar topic. Let's read that introduction. Steroids, sciatica, we don't really need to go through a history lesson on that or, you know, dive into the the uh, sort of nuances of what's happened prior to this paper. So we cut that out. We're going to jump to the methods and results. By the time we're kind of done with those, we should have our own conclusion. So we can glance at what the opinions of the authors were as well and go over the discussion if we so choose. But it's also, as you mentioned, just a sort of non-systematic review of what's been discussed. So the meat of the matter lies in the methods and results. Yeah, if you're just reading for pleasure, reading the introduction and the discussion is, is in a lot of ways like listening to an episode of MRAP or whatever. You're getting background information, but that's not why you downloaded a scientific paper. Now, that being said, if you want to do a much deeper dive, if you were going to write something like I write on, on my website, uh, an in-depth topic review, often hidden in the introduction or discussion, there are links to other papers, other studies done on the topic. So it, it really depends on why you're reading this paper. It, it, so I, it's not like I never read them, but if you're just trying to figure out what this this paper says they aren't telling you the science. Sure, that makes sense. Okay, and so now where do you go? You've you've sort of gotten your first paper. Do you allow that paper to sort of dictate the direction you go in terms of the next paper read? Sometimes I find that I'll find my first interesting paper on topic, the one that I think is probably going to most accurately answer my question. And when I go through their references, I find 10 more. And it just becomes this like expanding pile of papers that almost dilutes my ability to get definitive information from it. Do you go back to your initial search with Google Scholar? Do you kind of do a combination? What's your process from that first paper on a topic? Yeah, so I'm, I may not be the best person to ask this specific question for the average clinician because what I'm sort of known for is these deep dives. And I do tend to be a down the rabbit hole kind of person. I'm, I'm one of those people who could lose an hour into Wikipedia clicking links and learning more and more and more and more. Sure. Uh, so I, I, I don't know that I'm fantastic at the, the shortcut. Uh, and part of this, unfortunately, uh, it, the worst part of evidence-based medicine is that no single trial is ever going to stand on, on on its own. Um, right. Science is all about replication and and seeing whether the, the the results are true. So you do sort of have to have a sense of the what, what the entirety of the science says. That being said, so if I'm trying to do a quick review on a topic, uh, the, the the shortcut that I use, if you have that systematic review, you know there's that forest plot that sort of shows you, you get a bunch of little dots that show how, um, how much of an effect uh, it, it has. I tend to, to circle the few that are furthest away from the midline. Those are the papers that show the biggest effect. Um, and so those are the ones that are going to be driving the, you know, the positive effect that, that you're, you're finding. And so if you, if you read the, the, uh, the trials that are, uh, are the most positive and they seem like real trials to you, then you probably don't need to read the ones that are, 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 are more ne- negative. Um, and so I, I tend to read more and more if I'm surprised by the results. If the really positive uh, trials seem really bad to me, then I'm going to have to read a few more to make up my, my mind. If the really positive trials seem great, then I can probably stop. That makes sense. And 
Unfortunately, sometimes in these Cochrane reviews, you do find those really strongly swaying ones tend to be the ones with a smaller N, a little less robust research method. They, you know, are oftentimes almost the outliers. And so coming back to that idea of making sure, you know, that the methods is a, of high quality before you really take on a paper, find its PDF and go through, that's obviously going to be important. But I, I see the point of sort of finding the papers that are the hardest hitting in terms of affecting the outcome that matters to our patients and chasing those. Yeah, and I may not have said what I think hardest hitting is the, is the best because, yeah, it's the ones that have either the biggest effect size or the largest uh, N. So I tend to look at a, a one of those graphs and pick out the one or two biggest trials and then the one or two most positive trials and then often the one or two most negative trials. So if there's 20 trials, I, I can I can limit that down to five or six and only go really deep if um, I still have questions after reading sort of those outliers, I would say. Perfect. That makes tons of sense. So let's say we did that. We found our data. We went through sort of steroid use in sciatica. We used Google Scholar. Unfortunately, there wasn't a uh, Cochrane review on the topic, so we found uh, five RCTs that we thought were valuable and came to our to our endpoint. We are ready to impress our nurses, our colleagues, and of course our patients with our evidence-based medicine prowess. And it feels good, you know, that sense of security, knowing that you're doing right by people, by your patients, and at least that you're doing it with the current best evidence. And you'd like to chase that feeling a little bit. You're pretty quickly, though, uh, intimidated just by the sheer breadth of material that an emergency medicine clinician is expected to know. So, Justin, how can someone stay up uh, to date on the key literature that's relevant to emergency medicine today? Yeah, so the nice thing is that that's probably pretty easy uh, in this day and age. Uh, it really depends on what you're trying to keep up uh, up to date in. Like if there's a specific topic that you're really interested in, if you're a PE guy, you probably need to have a different approach. But for the average doc who just wants to sort of know all the things coming out, um, I would say that this is mostly you want to let somebody else do this for you. So um, it used to be Jerry Hoffman and Rick Bucata, but I still uh, subscribe to the emergency medicine abstracts. Uh, but there's lots of options. There's Journal Watch or Info Poems, or you use a FOMED site like the, the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine or, or Rebel YEM. Um, and uh, I mean, I guess I can name my own site first 10 a.m. But I, I would say there are a lot of nerdy people out there reading a lot of papers and doing the filtering and, and presenting what are the best papers at any time. So I would pick a couple of those sources and let them tell you uh, what the best literature is. I also tend to suggest like you pick the one, one, two, or three biggest journals in your areas uh, and at least just get the email. Uh, so every time Annals of Emergency Medicine comes out in, in our field, get the, get the email so you can at least like scan through the titles uh, that, that are coming out. But for the most part, you don't want to be doing this as a busy doctor. Let somebody else do it, but then listen to their summaries. Uh, I love that answer mostly because I think that's what I do. So that's con uh, confirming my, my general practice that we need a, a, a net, right? We need a, a, an initial filter. Uh, and when I talk with residents about this, I actually think there's a detriment in medical education in that we, we do teach how to break down journal articles, right? We have journal club. We learn about how to criti critically appraise an article, but we're not teaching people as well the power of, you know, foam or of the uh, educational uh, infrastructures out there to allow for a filtering effect and even to critique a foam piece itself, right? We don't have great skills in, you know, explaining why uh, academic life in emergency medicine is so great and some, you know, how you can really take an article or a blog or a podcast and dissect it in that way. But 
I strongly believe, and it sounds like you do as well, that these entities like Rebel, like Journal Feed, like some of those that are out there are a means of allowing us to get access points with all of the plethora of materials that are relevant to our trade. And as emergency physicians, we have so many specialties that we need to keep our finger on the pulse of that these entities are vital for us to really uh, be keeping ourselves abreast. Just like you're going to critically appraise any article you come down, you know, I, I don't, I don't think you should just trust what these FOMAD sites uh, say, but they're really good at getting information to to you, and then you can put on your critical thinking hat and think about what they're actually saying. But they're they're doing a lot of work for you. That it would be silly not to use that work. But right, exactly. So if you're using you know emergency medicine abstracts and you're getting you know your information that way, when you come to a landmark article. It's important to not just take it as face value. As you said, we need to read that literature and hopefully you're seeing it in different formats. You know, if it's coming across in journal feed, emergency medicine abstracts, or if you have annals being pushed to your phone or to your email, you'll see these huge landmark trials that we as ED physicians need to know. And yes, we need to break those down on our own, but use some of these uh, agencies for filtering what is important and what is not. Yeah, and actually, it's, it's not really what we were supposed to be talking about, but you already said it. How to use these tools we don't talk about very much. So like when I listen to MRAP, I listen on 2x speed, and I go through the entire thing because 10 years into my practice, I'd say 90% of the segments, I sort of know or it's a refresher. But then when I hit that one where I'm like, oh, I haven't heard this in a while, I slow it all the way down and really concentrate and really think. Same thing with the emergency medical abstracts. Like Again, most of the time, these are whatever papers. They're not going to change your practice. But the one or two a month, I pause. I email myself, I download the paper and I think about it myself. So you got to re realize when you're doing screening and when you actually have to pause and really focus and learn. That's well said. I, I like that sort of processes of, right, like we said, where it's a filter. We want to have touch points with all of these different fields of medicine. And you know, knowing the conclusion of a simple orthopedic tip in terms of splinting, that's important, but probably not in a journal that you need to re-listen to and download and read on your own. But when you hit those huge trials or those uh, groundbreaking ones, knowing that it's time to come out at 2x speed, listen to it, listen to it again, find the primary literature and review it yourself, that's going to keep you sharp. Yep, yep. Awesome. All right, so I'm going to try to do a summary of what you've mentioned and said, and then I want you to see how I did, correct me, and add if there's anything that we haven't talked about. How's that sound? Sounds great. All right, excellent. So... We've had Justin here today from First 10 EM. We've been talking basically about how to answer a clinical question. And then we added a little tidbit in there about how to use some of these other agencies, you know, podcasts or blogs to allow ourselves to stay sharp. So into the clinical question realm, when Justin comes across a question that he wants to answer, he is going to the Cochrane Review, to Google Scholar, and to the TRIP database to type in for the question itself. Ideally, we have someone who's already done this work. We already have a good Cochrane review on the topic. We can dissect those. And it's important, as you mentioned, to read the articles yourself. But if somebody's done this curating for you, why not take advantage of that? Use your Cochrane review or other curation methods. If there's not one out there, then you're going to use these same agencies with preferences for, again, Cochrane or the TRIP database and Google Scholar above PubMed because of their sort of filtering ability. When you find an article, you're going to read the conclusion and then come back to the methods to sort of do a very quick litmus test of quality. 
if you think that it's quality, you find the article, and then you are essentially skipping the you know abstract, the introduction, and getting into the methods and results to sort of see what kind of conclusions you as a clinician can draw on the material. If you have time, you're welcome to do the discussion and see what the author's conclusion of their own research was. But really, by the time you've read the methods and results, you have digested that article in its entirety. And this, when you're getting practice at it, Justin says, takes maybe 5, 10 or so minutes. Once you've gone through your literature review on your handful of quality papers on the topic, you're done. You can kind of wrap it up. You can dive further into the references if you so choose to get really in down the rabbit hole and to get a full breadth of what's out there. But sticking with the largest trials and the ones with the most effect on uh, outcomes for our patients is where you're most time efficient in doing this research. We then kind of concluded talking a little bit about how we get these articles or this information across our desk. We enjoy the idea of being knowledgeable on a topic matter, but it's nearly impossible given the number of specialties that we need to be up to date on for us to do this independently going through primary literature. So by using blogs and podcasts and other filtering methods, we find the articles that are of great value and listen to the author's conclusion on it, you know, using emergency medicine abstracts as an example. We listen and re-listen to that, but then we also need to dive into the literature on our own accord, doing the same method that we just discussed. Justin, how'd I do? Anything to add, subtract? What do you think? Yeah, it sounds like a great summary of how I find uh, find data. Uh, the The bigger one that we maybe didn't completely address is how we actually read that that methods section and how we read the the papers. And maybe that's a topic for an entirely another uh, a podcast. But I, I think the one thing to say very quickly about it is people get really daunted by statistics, mm-hmm. and I think it's really important to realize that as clinicians, we shouldn't be reading the statistics. There's statisticians for that. We're just trying to think, is this paper fair? Like, was this a fair race? And I think most of the time you can just just do that with common sense. You just think, you know, you want to make sure that like, people were using the uh, same finish line, that there wasn't like cheating, but they weren't running one person uphill, one person downhill. You're just trying to figure out what, whether it was fair, which just means in medicine, you know, were the groups very similar? Were we treating them the same? So if you just think about clinical questions, forget about the stats, and I think you'll do it really well reading a paper. I like that. And and. Yes, I think a specific podcast on how to go through the methods section of an article would push it into the very boring topic matter, probably. So maybe we'll save it for another time. If people really want that, we can have Justin back to go over how to read the methods section. But I think that that sort of 10,000 foot view, that sort of gestalt that we as educated clinicians can do is fair, right? When we are comparing two groups in these articles, it's pretty easy or we should be able to tell without much dissection of the statistics whether there was a fair comparator between the two. Yeah, so I, I think that's entirely right. Just remember why you're reading the paper. You don't have to be the scientist. You have to be a practicing doctor. So I just finished reading a, a trial about N95s, for example, but it says right in the paper that it was N95s versus surgical masks, but both groups wore N95s some of the time, but not all of the time. So if you say that out loud, you're like, oh yeah, okay. So you're basically comparing the exact same thing in both groups. So of course the outcomes are the same. I think most doctors are smart enough to read read the paper, but where people get turned off is they get so distracted by these statistical terms and, and, and things things like that. We can get more into depth on it. If people want, there's a post called Evidence-Based Medicine is Easy on my website, First 10 EM. And if you just want an approach to reading a paper from that same, that clinician viewpoint, I would suggest starting there. We'll definitely throw that into the show notes and 
Justin, thank you for doing what you do in this regard because Again, I've always looked up to your your evidence-based approach and your your ability to and willingness to dive into the literature to such a degree. I hope that our listeners are able to take a small piece of who you are and what you do for our specialty to their own practice. And guys, I know I learned a lot. I hope you did too. Justin, thank you so much for joining us today. It was an absolute pleasure. 